Morena and welcome to the Morning Chorus. I'm Bernard Hickey for the Kaka. It is Monday the 19th of February and I wanted to talk today about population growth, infrastructure investment and what the new government is saying and thinking about it. Because in my view our issues around housing, unaffordability, climate change, inaction and poverty reduction are in large part due to a lack of investment in infrastructure for housing and public transport over the last 20 to 30 years relative to population growth. To give you an idea, uh, Aotearoa New Zealand's population grew at a rate of around about 2% per annum from about 1950 through to about 1975. Now that makes sense uh, uh, if you think about um, the baby boom. A whole bunch of men came back from World War II. In fact, the population growth, uh, the last time it was as high as it was in 2023 was in 1947. Uh, so that's the year after uh, a whole bunch of troops came back from Europe and Japan, the Middle East and Asia. So that period between 1947, 1950 and 1975 or so uh, saw population growth of around 2%. Now that was um, responded to and anticipated by governments of the day, both left and right leaning, by increasing investment in all sorts of public network infrastructure. water roads, electricity, telecommunications, railways and uh, that meant the government, both central and local government, was investing around about 15% of GDP. At a peak, anywhere between 10 and 15% of GDP in infrastructure investment, net infrastructure investment, which is replacing old tired things but actually brand new in addition to infrastructure investment. So just put that number in your head, between 10 and 15% of GDP from the government invested in infrastructure for a fast-growing population. That This was a, uh, a national effort. It was considered uncontroversial and uh, something that was a given. If you're going to have fast population growth from a baby boom, you certainly needed to make sure there were houses for all those new families. And particularly if you're going to have a whole bunch of people come back from the war after some big sacrifices, you want to make sure that they can start families in new homes. So the Ministry of Works and a whole bunch of people built an awful lot of water networks for new suburbs, motorway networks for new suburbs, and um, this was considered normal and right. Effectively, one generation was paying it forward so that a new, a new generation could have a better life. So two per, just put that, those two numbers in your head. Infrastructure investment, 10-15% to 15 of GDP, at the same time as population was growing at 2% of GDP. Now that meant, to pay for all that, there was high, higher taxes. So income tax rates were significantly higher than they are now. Uh, many of the highest tax rates were over 50%. And there were land taxes and um, other forms of taxation, and not just income taxes. Uh, in effect, uh, we, there were various taxes on imports, 
which meant that the price of goods was higher than it otherwise would have been. Come the reforms of the late 1980s, early 1990s, governments of both flavours took a view that the nation was overtaxed and too much investment had happened in infrastructure. We all hear about Think Big and Robert Muldoon and the Resource Management Act was written and passed in large part because politicians of both sides wanted to stop large infrastructure projects which they believed were unnecessary, too expensive and often rode over the rights of locals uh, with the use of the Public Works Act to uh, procure land, to build dams, to do all sorts of things without too much environmental impact assessment. That's the RMA. Fast forward to 2024, we've had a significant reduction in not just tax rates but public infrastructure investment in networks relative to GDP. So remember it was between 10 and 15% of GDP from 1950 through to mid-1970s. Uh, it has dropped to anywhere between 5 and 10%, mostly 5% over the last 20 to 30 years. And uh, that's because people in the late 1980s, early 90s were told and believed that there wouldn't be much population growth because the baby boom had finished and we were unlikely to have significant growth from migration. And that was true through the 80s and 90s. That stopped being true from 2003 onwards when our population started growing quite fast because of temporary migration and we've had population growth of one and a half to two percent over the last 20 years and last year our population grew 2.8 percent the fastest rate since 1947 yet when you look at the government share of uh, GDP which goes into infrastructure investment and remember most of these public infrastructure networks have to be done with public infrastructure investment the numbers have dropped sharply so remember two percent population growth during the baby boom years investment rates 10 to 15 percent of gdp from the government now more like one and a half to two percent population growth so a little bit less but not that much less than during the baby boom years but government investment in gdp in public infrastructure closer to five percent than 10 to 15 percent so why am I going into a little history lesson about this? Well, yesterday uh, the new immigration minister, Erica Stanford, said some interesting things in an interview with Jack Tame on Q&A. And I've included the full interview link to the video of the interview in today's email newsletter. In it she said that 2.8% population growth from 126,000 new migrants was unsustainable. She made some comments about how there would be some natural reduction in this migration rate as a lot of those people who came back after the uh, COVID lockdowns, uh, their temporary work visas, typically up to three years, expired and they went home again. It's interesting to know, of course, that many of those, those on temporary work visas don't go home. They have their visa rolled again and again. 
Uh, interestingly, she was also asked about the current problem where those people who've had their visas rolled and rolled and rolled, and there's many that have uh, had their visas rolled for more than 10 years, are now bouncing up against uh, particular problems with their ability to stay if their health changes. So as you get older, uh, into your 40s and 50s, you tend to start to develop various health issues. And at the moment, there are a bunch of these rolled temporary work visa people who have been kicked out with their families because it's been discovered that they um, face some sort of significant hospital bill. And our rules say that we shouldn't um, allow people to stay on a temporary work visa if they've got some sort of chronic health condition which costs the rest of us, so to speak, lots of money. And Erica Stanford defended this. But interestingly, she also said that she had asked her officials for a for advice on a government policy statement on what New Zealand's absorptive capacity was and whether our migration rate was too fast for that. So we're starting to get into an area where people ask the question rightly, uh, do we have enough infrastructure for all the p extra people who are coming into the country? Do we need to invest more infrastructure or do we need to slow down migration? Now at the moment, migration is very fast and although Erica Stanford is reviewing the settings for temporary migration and she did make comments about she wondered whether a lot of the lower skilled migrants uh, should be coming. Um, that tends to clash with the calls from her own party members for lots more temporary cheap migration to keep wages down and prices down and so that businesses don't have to invest much in new labour-saving technology because they'd prefer to put their scarce investment money into residential land. And this is uh, an interesting question that I'm going to follow up a bit more on. What is our absorptive capacity? How much underinvestment has there been? How much investment should there be? And uh, what is the agreement between the parties for a long-term view on that? So Erica Stanford is talking about this. This is ironically something that the Productivity Commission proposed a couple of years ago. Remember, that's the one that's just been established. And uh, that um, will be something to keep an eye on. So far, the government, or at least Erica Stanford, is talking a sensible game about uh, not um, allowing too many people to come in if there wasn't enough infrastructure investment, whereas the actual practice has been to, from both sides of politics, to encourage very strong population growth without the infrastructure investment. That's an interesting one. The next one is uh, a speech from Christopher Luxon yesterday, a State of the Nation speech. Uh, we'll call it the Fragile Economy speech, in which he said he wanted to be straight with New Zealanders, that New Zealand's economy was in a fragile place, that the previous government had borrowed too much, spent too much, and he made comments about how uh, New Zealand needed to ensure that foreign investors trusted us and that our currency remained strong uh, to uh, continue on with the economy. He was suggesting in a way that um, that financial markets had lost faith in New Zealand government bonds and government debt and that drastic fiscal action was required. That is simply not true. Uh, last week um, the New Zealand Debt Management Office of the Treasury uh, 
uh, offered up a new 20-year bond a new, and another 30-year bond and demand for that bond was very high. So more than three times the volumes of the bonds on issue were bid. So um, that is just wrong. And when you look at the uh, New Zealand government bond yield relative to US government bond yields, there has been a rise in recent years, in part because our interest rates are higher, uh, although not that much higher than the US. And um, for large periods of time over the last seven or eight years, New Zealand bonds have actually been cheaper than US bonds. So um, the claim that New Zealand is losing the faith of international investors is just wrong. Now the question is, um, if there's a crisis, what do you do about it? Uh, he suggested that the government would pursue traditional and conservative fiscal policies to reduce debt, uh, reduce interest rates and um, uh, win back the faith of financial markets. Uh, it's an interesting argument uh, if you are being truly uh, fiscally responsible and conservative. One of his arguments was that people who were claiming the benefit and uh, had not carried out all of the requirements of the Ministry for Social Development to keep their benefit would lose it. He described um, the situation as a time when uh, there should be no free rights and someone who wasn't working hard enough to get a job wouldn't keep getting the free ride. Well you can uh, look at the free ride question in a broader sense uh, and you can also ask the question about uh, conventional fiscal policy. So the OECD and the IMF have both recommended that the government tax gains on capital. Uh, that is not the case at the moment and isn't proposing proposed to be the case. So New Zealand would have a much better fiscal position if we had a capital gains tax or some form of tax on wealth or capital, which we don't. Secondly, um, the question about free rides. Um, if you're going to talk about uh, the extra people on the main benefit, the sickness, job seeker, single parent benefits, uh, then, and there are about an extra 70 to 80,000 compared to six years ago. You also need to look at the number of people who are receiving New Zealand superannuation who are also earning incomes of over 100,000. That amount is now $1.1 billion in New Zealand superannuation being paid to people, about 50,000, who earn more than $100,000 in income. So this is a piece of social welfare designed to keep people out of poverty and it's going to people who are earning more than $100,000 in income each year. Now I actually personally prefer a universal basic income for those people over the age of 65, but if you're going to do that you need to be um, clear about uh, whether you income test or means test and uh, whether you're being fair when you say to people who are receiving a benefit that is now indexed at a, uh, a slower rate than for those people on New Zealand Super, whether this is fair. Thirdly, I just want to have a look at um, the housing market and what's going on there at the moment. There was a lot of excitement when the new government came in, 
because there was talk about uh, changing the tax rules for rental property investors, potential for foreign buyers to come in, and also a lot of talk about interest rate cuts coming soon. This was back in October, November, December. So there was a slight pickup in sales and certainly a lot of interest, but not a lot of follow through. And what we're seeing now from the surveys in January and February of mortgage brokers, real estate agents, uh, and looking at things like uh, lending, is that um, the initial enthusiasm has softened because there's still a lot of uncertainty about what is actually going to happen to uh, the tax arrangements for rental property investors. There's been uh, a coalition agreement which talked about bringing forward those tax arrangements early, but we still don't have detail on the tax cuts uh, for people on middle to higher incomes. We also don't have information on what's going to happen with the debt to income multiple limits that the Reserve Bank's bringing in, which are proposed and proposed in tandem with looser loan to value ratio restrictions. Until there's certainty on that, you can understand why investors in particular are um, wary of jumping into the market. And finally, uh, interest rates are not falling fast as people were hoping for and sort of expected by about now. Last week's speech from the Reserve Bank Governor in which he said that um, the last mile of getting inflation down, reducing core inflation, underlying inflation, was going to be difficult. And he pointed out that currently underlying inflation as the Reserve Bank measures it was still 4.7%, which is more than double the 2% midpoint of the medium-term target range the Reserve Bank talks about. So he seems to be suggesting that there won't be interest rate cuts soon. And certainly around the world, particularly the United States, and also here to an extent, the uh, expected rate cuts that would follow, be followed through with mortgage rate cuts is being pushed out towards later in the year. So there's uncertainty there as well. And I've put into today's email newsletter a um, chart from Tony Alexander's survey of mortgage brokers that came out on Friday showing how enthusiasm um, requests for uh, finance advice from rental property investors has uh, waned in the last couple of months. There obviously was a surge uh, in late 2023 as it became clear that there would be a change of government and then there was. But without certainty on DTIs, LVRs, interest rates, um, the income tax cuts, and the arrangements for changing interest deductibility, exact certainty, uh, people are, are holding back. So the idea that the country, essentially a housing market with bits tacked on, would get back on track quite fast is um, up in the air at the moment. It's not helped as well by essentially most planning for infrastructure, water, roads, railways is all on hold public housing because um, the government has frozen the, this decision making, suspended um, capital grants for things like um, big transport projects. There's obviously been cancellations of the Auckland so-called light rail project from the CBD to the airport. Let's Get Wellington Moving was cancelled. The IREX project uh, for new ferries across the Cook Strait and all of the infrastructure around that has been cancelled and Kanga Ora's 
massive build program is currently suspended in terms of new new builds beyond um, 2025. So um, the construction sector uh, is is in a bit of a cooling down space at the moment, and that's taking some wind out of the sails of the economy. And uh, just finally, an interesting story that's popped up out of Queenstown, uh, an ad on Facebook Marketplace from a guy uh, saying that his bed, which he sleeps in, uh, could be rented out to share to people he doesn't know for $195 a week. The deal, deal is you sleep on, your, on one half of the bed and this other guy sleeps on the other half of the bed. Uh, because um, so-called co-bed sleeping arrangements. This is where you have people in shifts sleeping in beds, uh, particularly with people who are in shift work. Um, And it's an interesting development to do with housing shortages. And uh, uh, interestingly, the um, ad referred to um, the guy offering the half-bed is saying he was clean and that uh, this was a good opportunity to spend $195 a week for half a bed. That's where we are now. I'm Bernard Hickey. That was our morning chorus for Monday the 19th of February. Kaki Tano.